Uh, yes, thank you. I'm speaking, so that's the enthusiasm that I'm looking for. <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26, a well-known passage of scripture. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when evil people I'm sorry, I added the word evil. Is that weird? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. There it is. On account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. So this passage from Luke chapter 6 is our gospel text for today, which is the sixth Sunday of Epiphany, for those of you who are following along with the lectionary uh, calendar of readings. And many of us might be more familiar with the Matthean version, the version from Matthew's gospel of the Beatitudes uh, found in his Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew. This in Luke occurs, we're told, on a level place. So it is known not as the Sermon on the Mount, but, but maybe as the Sermon on the Plain. So there's that, that geographic difference. And in Luke's account, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain parallels the structure of certain passages of Hebrew scripture in which lists of blessings and woes appear in sequence, one after the other. And in today's lectionary texts, both the psalm and the text from the Old Testament, Jeremiah, both these texts, appointed for this sixth Sunday of Epiphany, present helpful examples of how Luke kind of draws on this structure from the Old Testament, brings it forward into the New Testament. So let me give you uh, a sampling here from Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. A little further down, they are like trees planted by streams of water. The wicked, there's this contrast, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Or in Jeremiah chapter 17, while the order of the blessings and woes is flipped, there's still this sequential list. Thus says the Lord, cursed are those who put their trust in mere mortals. They shall be like a shrub in the desert. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water. So in both of these passages, those who are blessed and cursed are described in terms of specific comparisons to the natural world. The blessed are like a tree planted by water. The cursed, on the other hand, those to whom woes are proclaimed, 
are like a shrub dwelling in a dry, arid place, or like chaff blown about by the wind. And the blessed, on one hand, are rooted. They're close to a source of nutrients. They exist in this kind of mutual, life-giving relationship with their environment. The cursed, on the other hand, have shallow roots. They're, they're isolated. Or they are completely disconnected, again, being blown about by the wind. So in the same way that the psalmist and the prophet Jeremiah address both blessed and cursed in turn, Jesus proclaims both blessings and woes in today's gospel text. In a passage that, again, parallels Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Luke's Sermon on the Plain has Jesus declaring blessings upon the poor, the hungry, the reviled, and the excluded, and then woes to the rich, the full, the laughing, the well-respected. So when Jesus declares blessings upon the poor, the hungry, the reviled, and the excluded, it might be easy to interpret his words as kind of like a valorization of, of suffering. Blessed are you poor and hungry, those who suffer. But this is, I think, a mistake in its context. As you recall from our scripture reading, before Jesus utters a word of this sermon, of his Beatitudes, he's healing all those who have a need. So this is not a, a valorization of suffering in that way. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, we read, he came down, stood with them on a level place, all of these people come to hear him to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits, they were cured. All the crowd was trying to touch him. Power came out from him and healed all of them. So if he's not commending suffering for suffering's sake in his sermon, what is he doing? Luke's Sermon on the Plain has Jesus declaring blessings upon the poor, the hungry, the reviled, the excluded, followed by woes to the, to the rich, the full, the laughing, the respected. Matthew's account and Luke's account. Luke's account echoes Matthew's in many ways, although Matthew excludes the woes from his beatitudes. But these two accounts in Matthew and Luke have key distinguishing features, right down to the seemingly minor difference of the geography in which they're delivered. One on the mount, one on the plain. But as the backdrop for Luke's Beatitudes, Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 seem to indicate that the geography and the environment, this seemingly minor difference between Matthew and Luke, are actually key to understanding what Luke is doing in his version of the Beatitudes. The geography and the environment, a tree planted by streams of living water, a shrub in an arid desert. Jesus here is describing the environment, the geography that the subjects of blessings and woes inhabit. Greg Boyle, who many of you might have heard of, he's the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the world's largest gang intervention and reha rehabilitation program. If you haven't heard of, of Greg, I'd encourage you to look him up. He's a really cool uh, figure reads Jesus' Beatitudes in precisely this way, with attentiveness to the geography that they call out. To this point that Jesus is doing more than proclaiming blessings and woes, Boyle says, the Beatitudes is not a spirituality after all. 
It's a geography that tells us where to stand. On this point, talking about the word blessing, blessed are, blessed are, it means more than just happy. It describes a geography. He says, scripture scholars contend that the original language of the Beatitudes should not be rendered as blessed are the poor, or blessed are the hungry, or blessed are those who are reviled. Greater precision in translation would say, you're in the right place if you're poor. You're in the right place if you're hungry. You're in the right place if you're reviled. So in line with the imagery of a of natural environment that the psalm and the prophetic text put forward, Jesus is telling his followers, you're in a fertile environment for blessing when you're in the company of the poor, the hungry, the reviled, and the excluded. Those to whom Jesus declares woes are those who face the natural result of, as Jeremiah puts it, putting trust in mortal flesh. Their mistaken idea of a right environment is one of self-sufficiency. Unlike the blessed, they see the company of others as completely unnecessary, especially if those others are poor, hungry, and canceled. In this sequence of woes, Jesus is not uttering condemnation on the rich so much, or the full, or the celebrated, as simply lamenting the, the inevitable end of their way of life. These woes are not so much predictive judgments upon the wicked as they are laments about the inevitable destination of the way of the wicked. Just as the Beatitudes tell us where to stand, the woes map a route to destruction. So if we're to hear Jesus rightly, I think we need to hear him as sorrowful for those who are too well-adjusted to this world. We would maybe do well to match up Jesus' tone here in the Beatitudes with his words in Luke chapter 13, later in Luke's narrative when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. This from Jesus, these declarations of woes are more pain than anger. They're more desire to draw people to himself than to send them away on their path to self-destruction. Again, I think it's important to remember that Jesus delivers these words in the context of offering compassion and healing to those present. He's meeting needs before he ever utters these words. So when we lean into these geographic metaphors, I think we can hear the truth of Jesus' words here a little bit more clearly. Maybe we can imagine them in different ways, perhaps with more clarity. So reading Luke's Beatitudes alongside Jeremiah 17, for example, paints a picture that highlights a certain irony. Although the well-adorned appear rich, they appear to have abundant life, they actually dwell in desert geographies, in parched, barren lands. So if the blessings can be read, you're in a fertile environment if you're keeping company with the poor, the hungry, the reviled, the excluded, perhaps the woes can be read, you're going to end up in a desert wasteland if you separate yourself from such company. You might end up rich, full, celebrated, spoken well of, but you will be all of those things in an uninhabited wasteland. I think Greg Boyle's suggestion that the Beatitudes tell us where to stand is a, is a faithful, fresh, 
reading of the Beatitudes. However, I think the, structure, the, 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 the overall structure of scripture kind of invites us further into that metaphor, invites us to expand upon it. In Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, as an expansion of the psalm and the passage from Jeremiah, Jesus is telling his followers, I think, not only where to stand, but where to move. He's giving directions. And if the Beatitudes is a set of directions, then the destination they point us toward must include keeping company with the poor, the hungry, the reviled, and the excluded. But even that is incomplete. As those who know, we who know, the inevitable emptiness that the way of worldly riches and fullness leads to, we must also move toward those who, by all visible measures, have it all. Those who are rich, those who are full, those who are celebrated, those who have no roots and and don't know it yet. We must also move toward them in love. It's almost as if we need to pause when we read Psalm 1-1, happy are those who do not take the path that sinners tread, and reimagine what this verse might mean in light of Jesus. After all, we are to follow the God who moves to the parched places, to tend to the desert shrubs. So in pursuing kind of the the missional implications of this rereading of Psalm 1, I'm indebted to a theologian, Chris Green, who asserts that we, as the church, are called to be salt, even and perhaps especially in the place that Jeremiah describes as an uninhabited salt land. We must imitate Christ in gathering up the chaff, in being the salt in the arid salt land. So there's a way of reading Jesus' instruction here as kind of a a roadmap, as directions, or maybe as marching orders for his followers. So if Jesus is giving his followers marching orders, What sort of mission is he describing? What mission are we on? I want to make a couple of suggestions, and I want to offer up, as I have become accustomed to doing, a couple of images that might help us to understand the kind of mission that Jesus is inviting us on in a better way. So first, the mission that Jesus describes to his followers here is best facilitated through interdependent community. The mission that he's inviting us on, the marching orders that he's giving us, are best facilitated through interdependent community. This community does not seek, nor is it impressed, by marks of self-sufficiency. Those for whom a life lived with others means inconvenience or burden or merely a step on their path to fame. He's not impressed with any of those things. This is the kind of community that seeks interdependence instead of self-sufficiency. This community is interdependent in that it consists entirely of those who know they are needy, those who acknowledge their neediness, and it is made up entirely of those for whom an encounter with others creates an opportunity for bestowing and receiving blessing. For example, those who are experiencing poverty, hunger, loneliness, or weeping. All are lacking in some fundamental way, and in a way that requires the presence and attentive care of others. 
So let me try to illustrate this more clearly with, with some art. I find this image that you'll see on the screen helpful in shedding light on what Jesus is up to on the Sermon on the Plain. This is an image called the Sermon on the Mount. I think it applies equally here, perhaps even better, to the, the Sermon on the Plain by Laura James. Yeah. In some ways, I think this image preaches the sermon better than I ever could. Notice the way the image is composed, first of all. The crowd whom Jesus addresses is seated beneath trees, but the way the artist portrays it, the way James has it here, there's almost a trick of the eye, making it appear as though the, the crowd is seated not only under the trees, but, but underground. When we see it this way, the very bodies of this crowd form the root system for the trees. In other words, the followers of Jesus are conduits for life-giving energy. Their presence together creates the delivery system for blessing. Some of you know so much more about, I don't know, planting, gardening, could offer probably some beautiful insight here. But I think this is important to realize that these followers of Jesus become the root system for the trees sprouting up above them. The painting also shows Jesus in the center with the crowd on his right and left. In Luke's gospel, Jesus lists blessings and woes, which at first glance might appear to be addressed to two distinct groups. On one side are the blessed, on the other side are those over whom woes are proclaimed. But in Luke, those blessings and woes are declared to everyone present. And the image does, it captures this. There's no discernible difference in appearance between those seated to Jesus' right or to his left. So in other words, you can't tell simply by looking who's rich or poor, hungry or full, reviled or celebrated in this image. In part because they all, we all, are all of these things at one time or another. So as redeemed sinners, we are Jesus' intended audience for both the blessings and the woes in this passage. Which is another way of saying that we are not really reliable judges of what's going on inside of us or what's going on inside of others from moment to moment. We might assume that we're the kind of deeply rooted tree described in Psalm 1 or Jeremiah 17 when in reality we have only shallow roots because we're dwelling in a desert. Or conversely, we might feel like a dried up shrub on the outside but God is at work beneath the surface to deepen our roots, to bring new life. The way this image is composed speaks to the truth of what it means to be rooted in Christ, which is that there's much more going on under the surface at any given moment. God is always at work in our lives and in the lives of others, even through us in ways that we may never see. And there's profound hope here, I think. Secondly, so first, the mission that Jesus is describing, the marching orders that he's giving his disciples, these are best facilitated through countercultural interdependent community. An interdependent community. Maybe the one that looks like a root system. Secondly, the mission that Jesus is describing to his followers is best facilitated through empty and vulnerable vessels. Those whom Jesus declares blessed, the poor, the hungry, the reviled, 
the weeping, the excluded, are those, each of them, in postures of dependence, those whose survival and flourishing require the presence of others to meet their needs. You'll see on the screen another image here that might help to illustrate this aspect of the mission that we're called to. This illustration by Scott Erickson captures that reality in his comment on this image. Erickson writes, do not feel ashamed of your emptiness. Instead, see that it is the perfect preparation in providing a home for something holy. During his earthly life, I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus himself experiences just such emptiness. He experiences poverty, hunger, revilement, and exclusion. And as we know, in his life, none of these things, none of these experiences have the final word. We not only serve the reviled, excluded Savior, but also the resurrected and victorious Savior. However, Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he was raised to new life, does not negate the suffering that he underwent. Certainly doesn't negate the suffering that we undergo before we experience new life. Instead, I'd submit to you that Jesus' resurrection transforms his revilement, transforms his exclusion into fruitfulness and blessedness. So I want to take a look at another image that's related to the first, also by Scott Erickson. And you'll notice probably in our lobby that we have a few Scott Erickson pieces. I find his art especially helpful in unpacking, shedding light on certain passages of scripture. Let's see, how am I doing here? Doing okay on time. This second image is, is closely related to the first. I think I have them side by side, yeah. So in this second one, a plant is growing up out of a casket, illustrating, of course, life springing forth from, from death. When Jesus says in John 12, 24, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's not just speaking a, a general truth, but a specific truth, or maybe a, a, a series of specific truths that he came to live out. His suffering makes possible our healing. His isolation makes possible the kind of community we, as his followers, are invited to become. His life is uprooted by hatred so that our lives can become rooted and grounded in love. So we're going to approach the Lord's table in just a few minutes, and I'd like for this image to kind of serve as our invitation to the table. And as we prepare, I'd like to close with a, a, a brief meditation drawn from this morning's texts and invite you to participate in that meditation. Uh, in today's psalm, the psalmist says, we're blessed as we delight in and meditate on God's love. So I think we'd do well to enter into that kind of meditation this morning as we're gathered. have this set up. I don't know if this is going to sound weird and cultish, but as a kind of call and response. So you'll see uh, a line listed on the screen that is uh, in regular text followed by one that's in 
bold text. Good, I, I did it, making sure. A line that's in regular text followed by one that's in bold text. So I will speak the line that's in regular text, and then together in unison we'll speak the words that are in bold text. You ready? So this will be two screens, I think, Warren. There's a lot of coordination that's happening here. See if it comes together. <laughs> See if it sounds as weird as I think it could. Are you ready to meditate on God's word? Jesus, you were poor, yet you lavish the riches of your grace on us. Jesus, you were hungry, yet from your fullness we receive. Jesus, you were reviled. Your rejection makes us acceptable. Jesus, you were excluded. Your isolation roots us in love. Jesus, you suffered. Your body hosts the broken. Jesus, you died. Your tomb nourishes a seed. Jesus, you were resurrected. You offer us your life. Kevin, if you'll come. Lord, yours is the life that sends out its roots by the stream. Yours is the life that does not fear when heat comes. Yours is the life that is not anxious in the year of drought. Yours is the life that does not cease to bear fruit. Lord, we pray that as we attempt to follow you faithfully, that our lives would be the fruit that your life bears, that our lives together would bear fruit, that we would reject forms of self-sufficiency that end in woe, that end in desolation, but that we would invite one another into mutual, reciprocal, life-giving, life-sustaining relationships. Lord, help us to be that root system that is the conduit for blessing. The root system that delivers your word in season. And the root system that delivers your word, that is strengthened to deliver your word in times of drought, especially in times of drought, especially in the uninhabited salt land to which you have called us. Lord, as we meditate upon these images, these geographies, these ecologies, would you speak to us by your spirit? Send us on mission to the places that we would rather avoid, to the people whom we would rather avoid. and empower us for your service. Create the conditions in our hearts, in our collective life as a community of those who would follow you, 
the conditions for this life to exist, for it to be nourished, for it to be watered, for it to receive your light. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Lucas, if you'd come, we'll approach the table in just a moment. We'll form two lines here down the center aisles. You'll approach uh, one of these two tables. And as you do, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements, return to your seat, and we'll receive them uh, individually. Would you join us at the table?